Hi, everyone. Welcome to Blockchain Value Conversation. Today, we have a special guest, and we're going to be talking about what's going to be happening in 2022. So we will be making predictions. And before we make predictions, let me give you some instructions, because we are talking about crypto and blockchain, and yes, some folks invest in this, but this conversation is not to give you legal advice or investment advice. Uh, this conversation is really for entertainment purposes only. So do enjoy it. And if you choose or is considered to invest, you know, do your research, talk to professionals, make sure you do not invest your last hard earned dollars. So definitely before you do anything, consult and uh, with professionals and, and do some independent thinking. But most definitely also enjoy this conversation because I have a very special guest today, uh, Mika Matsumura, and I will let Mika introduce himself because he knows himself much better than I know him, although I'm a huge admirer. Mika, please introduce yourself. Yeah, thanks so much, Olga. So uh, my name is Miko, and uh, I'm a general partner with Gumi Cryptos Capital, which is a venture capital firm. We've been operating our fund for about four years now. And, uh, you know, we did make a number of uh, very early stage investments. Uh, we do DeFi and CeFi. Uh, we invested in Celsius Network, uh, OpenSea, which recently raised uh, substantial rounds. Um, also YGG, Yield Guild Games, uh, and a number of other DeFi, CeFi, and infrastructure projects. Uh, one of our recent ones uh, actually is Agoric, wearing the Agoric hoodie. And uh, I think that one's been uh, pretty exciting as well. So, you know, we continue to, uh, you know, look for exciting uh, startups. And, uh, you know, we go very early stage to invest in, uh, you know, the, I guess, the future of blockchain. Oh, I love it. Um, yes, OpenCD did really well recently. Um, it's, 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 it's almost mind-blowing how well. <laughs> uh, it's, it's been fun to see those guys grow up. I'm going to start a little bit more from the beginning just because uh, I think folks are, will be interested to know how, you know, what you did before blockchain crypto, how you got into it, and, 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 and why you get up in the morning excited to do more of it. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, I'm happy to be on a show called Blockchain Value because I, I come from developer relations. So, you know, really from developer tools. So, you know, I got my start uh, almost, it's been almost 30 years since the birth of the Java language and platform. So, you know, my first kind of meaningful role here in Silicon Valley was working as a chief Java evangelist. So, you know, really developer and platform relations. I've been working on a number of uh, startups in the open source software domain, including uh, Hazelcast, which is an in-memory database, uh, things like Gradle, which is a build automation software principally for Java, but now being used across uh, lots of different uh, programming language environments. And, uh, you know, thing things uh, like mobile cloud services. Uh, so lo lots and lots of developer tools. So that, that's been my... Uh, kind of passion. And what was what was the event that inspired you to do crypto? Yeah, so uh, I was working on an in-memory database called Hazelcast. And my uh, friend, who is actually the founder of Hazelcast, uh, basically uh, called me up and said, wow, I've been studying uh, Bitcoin, you know, and uh, he actually 
uh, went all the way to kind of the heart of Bitcoin, which is he sort of built his own implementation of the Bitcoin protocol just to see how it worked. And, you know, he got very excited about it. And, you know, he started, you know, excitedly teaching me, you know, all about it. So, you know, we, we actually worked together uh, on a project. Uh, but, uh, you know, after I started seeing the potential, uh, I was definitely uh, hooked. <laughs> well, I think that, that that is a story that is true for many of us. One excited friend that makes you excited for life, right? You did some pivots into actual investing. Um, and I'm just curious, uh, how, how did that pivot come about? Because, you know, you were on the business side of a sort of selling developer tools, which is, you know, let's just say a very geeky, narrow niche to now yeah. building the and, and being kind of in the center of this, you know, DeFi, C5, uh, all of the stuff that is going on as an investor. That's a very different role. How did that happen to you? Yeah, I mean, I would say that like it's a combination of things, but you know, one of them is uh, really thinking hard about my sort of career, right? And so I, I got my start in developer evangelism, right? So evangelism really means kind of this idea of spreading the good news, right? So I, it has a religious connotation, you know, and, and it kind of borrows from uh, Guy Kawasaki, who was the first uh, Macintosh and, you know, evangelist. So, you know, it, it really has to do with kind of making developers excited, you know. So for me, like, in thinking about kind of what I have to offer, I really thought about this from that perspective, right? So, so the way that I really got my start is, you know, I really started traveling to a number of conferences, you know, and, and speaking, you know, and really being fairly visible. And, you know, because I was sort of a visible uh, person in the industry, uh, I was able to get a number of conversations, uh, one of which uh, included the Gumi Corporation, which at the time was, you know, uh, looking to start a Silicon Valley uh, headquarters for a venture fund, you know, and uh, Gumi Corporation is actually a mobile gaming company based in Tokyo. So they're uh, Japanese guys, but looking to come into Silicon Valley. Uh, it turns out that my kind of cultural background, my parents are from Japan. You know, I certainly understand some Japanese and, you know, I have cultural sensitivity, you know, as well as kind of a very intense passion for blockchain technology. So I think, I think we ended up, uh, you know, hitting it off and, and I ended up joining uh, their fund. Really cool. What a great story. And, um, you know, what I, one of the things I like about crypto and blockchain is that it is actually not centered in the Valley. Um, a lot of it is in, in Japan, Korea and Singapore. And, and that's where kind of exciting stuff is. So, for those of us who are one leg in different cultures, it's 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 a great opportunity to do exciting stuff. Um, let's talk about 2020 because 2020, I think, is going to be a very exciting place for blockchain and crypto. Um, what do you think? <laughs> well, I think one of the things that's important to do now, especially since we're seeing price action and volatility, is to zoom back. Right. So zoom back really far as far as you can to really try to understand the foundations of what's happening. And, you know, I think at the very end of 2022 and the beginning of 2023, you know, the world population is going to hit eight billion. Right. So, you know, that's a lot of people. And I think one of the things that seems very clear is it seems that our systems are not really holding up 
you know, if you look at uh, Mark Zuckerberg, uh, he doesn't want to run a company called Facebook. So he's become a CEO of Meta, right? And if you look at Jack Dorsey, you know, he doesn't want to run a company called Twitter. You know, he doesn't even want to run a company called Square. He wants to run a company called Block, right? Like, I think Jack is looking for some of that uh, blockchain value, you know, that that is sort of the show is about, right? So, you know, to me, this is a pretty seismic shift. And the reason why I think these leading entrepreneurs are kind of moving in this direction is I think they've understood that this kind of we're at the cusp of a transition between, you know, what some people call Web 2, you know, of which Twitter and Facebook belong, and then, you know, towards something called Web 3, right? So, you know, which I think includes things like Zuckerberg's idea of metaverse, but it also includes things like uh, Jack Dorsey's Bitcoin, you know, and further, it includes, you know, lots, lots more, more things than that. Uh, there's a lot of gamification and gaming in there, uh, you know, VR, AR. So there's a lot of ingredients. Uh, some people even say that there's AI in there. But, you know, it's, it's clear that there has been a pretty seismic change. And, uh, you know, I'm happy to kind of go into more detail. Uh, yeah, yeah, no, we'll, we'll go into details because you have, a, you've said a lot of things. And let me tell you, I like to unpack them. So, um, where do we begin? Well, let's start with the systems that are not holding up. Tell me more about that. <laughs> yeah. So I think one of the issues becomes that um, trust is the biggest concern and the biggest issue right now. Here's the funny part is people are talking about things like the cost per transaction, right? So people are concerned about things like the electric electricity cost. You know, apparently you can drive for two and a half miles in a Tesla to get the equivalent of about one Ethereum transaction under proof of work. Now, obviously, we're heading into the merge where Ethereum will drop in energy consumption by over 99.3%, right? So obviously, in the proof of stake Ethereum 2.0, after the merge, we're going to see really, really dramatically less expensive uh, Ethereum. But the transactions. But I would say that the thing that is most important to try to understand is like, what is happening? And what's happening is, is that we have a transactional fabric that is essentially uh, managing an adversarial system, right? Where there's no trust, right? So what we've built uh, in blockchain is a fabric for, uh, you know, basically removing the necessity to trust intermediaries, right? So what's failing is actually that uh, we, we really have used trust but that there are limits to scaling trust, right? So, you know, centralization has been the trick that we've been using. And you know, with centralization, you get incredibly cheap transactions, you get incredibly fast transactions, but you also get something called rug pulls, all right? And a rug pull is when the central authority does something wrong, right? So, you know, I think right now in the kind of, you know, me too world, like, you know, it seems like centralized authorities are constantly doing wrong things. You know, yeah. and I think, you know, and obviously there's a bunch of other social and cultural phenomena, you know, things like, um, you know, the incident with George Floyd. And so there, there's a lot of kind of cultural interest in authorities doing wrong things, you know, and I think that's that's been part of the cultural movement. So folks loosely use this Web 2, Web 3. Um, I was recently um, interviewed by um, NPR reporter who wanted me to define um, Web 3 
And, you know, our discussion very quickly got to that philosophical place. So, Miko, I'm going to put you in the spot. What is your definition of Web3? <laughs> yeah, so I'm I'm very happy to sort of first off complain about it a little bit. <laughs> and the, the reason why I'm complaining about it a little bit is, is that the Web is defined by a set of protocols, right? There was a gentleman by the name of Tim Berners-Lee uh, who, who developed the World Wide Web right? And including things like HTTPS, right? And so all of the web protocols have not been versioned. There's no, there isn't a web 2.0, right? And there isn't a web 3.0. So really it becomes then sort of a metaphor. And the problem with these kind of metaphors is that they mean many different things to different people. So really web three and web two don't really have a definition, uh, you know, and in a way, like a lot of pundits, you know, will just fight over what it really means. But to me, the thing that is meaningful is that something significant has happened, right? And I think that what significant that is happening is we're starting to see mass adoption of blockchain, as well as cryptographic assets and NFTs. So like, um, you know, we're seeing this kind of mass adoption which I think is this idea of a web. So are we in fact rebuilding what we think of as the internet from the foundation? I do think that we are. And I think we're building systems that have different trust properties, uh, you know, based on blockchain technology. So, you know, is, will there be a new internet? Will the way we use the internet be unrecognizable in 10 years? I think without a doubt. So, you know, is there, in that sense, is there a Web3? Uh, you know, I think there is. Like, I think there is definitely a huge revolutionary thing happening. Whether you want to call it Web3 or not, it's up to you. <laughs> okay. Well, you started talking about Bitcoin. So let's talk about Bitcoin. Do you think this will be a year it will underperform or overperform S&P 500? Well, I think there's no question it will overperform. I mean, that's just my own humble opinion. But like, you know, for me, like we seem to be having bearish price action, but I think that it isn't very parallel to what we saw, you know, in 2017 with this kind of three-year bearish market, right? So to me, uh, it seems like uh, since we're having such interesting kind of a macroeconomic climate, you know, it, it seems likely, especially with kind of increases in inflation, that we're going to see outperformance, right? So I think obviously inflation also impacts the S&P. So the question then becomes, well, what will be the difference, right? So for me, I can't really accurately predict the price of Bitcoin on a given day. Anyone who says they can, well, you know, is probably fooling. <laughs> I didn't ask you that question. <laughs> they're, they're either fooling themselves or they're trying to fool you, you know, but for me, I would say that like, you know, it, it just seems very improbable that we would have a protracted uh, bear market. So in, in a sense, there's two scenarios, the pretty obvious thing for me to say, but, you know, Bitcoin will either rebound from where we are, right, and probably achieve a new all time high, or it will go into a more prolonged dip. But I would say the more prolonged dip, I don't see it possibly lasting even as long as the rest of 2022. So, you know, I see a rebound, you know, so it either dips and then it rebounds strongly or it kind of reverses in the near future and, and goes strongly. But I would say that the, the two, the two long-term prognostications is that it'll, it'll continue to go strongly. I think there are risks in that kind of a statement. So I think anyone needs to diversify if they're invested in Bitcoin, because, you know, it is, uh, there are risks, right? There are risks in 
uh, I think one of the biggest risks is that there's an ESG agenda. So, you know, the environmental sustainability of Bitcoin is not great. Obviously, something like an Ethereum is now replacing the electricity expensive proof of work with the proof of stake. So, you know, I think that those are risks. And then another risk in Bitcoin is obviously there's some regulatory risks, <laughs> although uh, Senator Loomis is introducing a bill in the Congress, uh, you know, from Wyoming. And, and it really, I think she's going to treat Bitcoin very well. So, you know, I think, yeah, I think there, we're there, probably there, headed to good legislation. There are a few bills and uh, we, we've had a few guests discussing that. So, so the so regulatory is definitely a, a massive, it's a risk. Ma is a massive, let's just say wild card, but sure. Yes. In, in your investor speak, it is a risk. Um, you know, um, and yes, go back to my beginning of the conversation. This is not uh, investment advice. <laughs> this is for entertainment purposes only. Um, but you now talked about Ethereum a couple of times and, and transition to proof of stakes and you know various ESG concerns with uh, with Bitcoin. So you know between the Bitcoin and Ethereum, who is going to be on top? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so here's my thinking on this, right? Which is that they're performing two very foundational roles, right? Which is Bitcoin is performing a role as the most trusted and most secure base asset. So in a sense, Bitcoin acts a little bit like gold, right? And I think that that's pretty exciting as an asset during kind of inflationary time windows, right? So if you think about digital gold and you think about the replacement of gold as sort of a scarce base asset, then, you know, I think as a reserve asset, it's, I think, continues to have value. You know, we're going to see some really interesting kind of national commitments to Bitcoin, I predict, in this next year. You know, there's a number of countries that are similar to El Salvador, you know, places like Vietnam, you know, there's a Brazil, there's a bunch of places where you could really see very strong use of Bitcoin as a reserve asset, or, you know, even as a nas national reserve or legal tender, right? So those are kind of Bitcoin use cases. I think Ethereum use cases, very, very, very different. It's sort of a novel compute platform, you know, uh, but I think because of DeFi, it's a little less like Amazon AWS and a little bit more like the stock market, you know. So in a sense, you know, Ethereum turns almost into a stock market, you know, which I think is a different uh, use case. Do you see? Do you think we're going to see cryptos being kind of more uh, adapted as one payment methods? And um, and do you think we're going to see more innovation in the recovery and sort of management? of those assets yeah a little, bit, a little bit less awkwardly maybe not fluidly but less awkwardly <laughs> yeah i mean i think it's very clear to most people that crypto is like a wild wild west right so you go out into this crazy frontier you know uh hope your uh sharp shooting skills are good because you know there's bandits and there's poisonous snakes and you know there's all kinds of crazy things in the wild west right but i think what's happening now with mass adoption is we're going to see a kind of a safer crypto right so we're going to see kind of a realm that is sort of illuminated by regulation you know so for example like if you see the things that coinbase are doing you know our portfolio company uh, celsius network is you know, working very closely with regulators. So there, I think there will be regulated custodians. Uh, I think there will be uh, stable assets like USDC that I think will help to kind of pave the way for a much 
more kind of, I would say, hacker proof and, you know, much more sort of safe uh, region, you know, within within this Wild West. Right. So I think as the railroads get built, more and more people can settle the Wild West and, you know, maybe make it a little less wild. There, there, there probably be wild, continue to be wild areas and have, have other areas that are not so wild. Wild areas. Okay, we'll talk about the safe crypto. But you mentioned El Salvador, Vietnam, um, you know, well-known example, of course, of China, uh, you know, you know, the central bank uh, issuing as digital currencies. Do you think... Um, that will be a thing. Do you think we're going to see more central banks, um, you know, issuing digital currencies? Or do you think that that will be an isolated sort of experience? No, I definitely see more CBDC experimentation. You know, I think for sure, I think we're going to see these types of things occurring, right? To me, I look at everything from the perspective of open source, right? So the question becomes, you know, Okay, well, so it turns out that there's like an open source operating system, right? And this is called Linux, right? So the question becomes, well, are there proprietary operating systems? Of course there are. There's like iOS for iPhones. Android is partly open, but also partly proprietary. You know, we're seeing things like Windows. Do those continue to exist? Of course they do, right? But for most of kind of internet applications, the back end is open source, right? So what happens naturally is that these kind of open source monies compete with proprietary uh, platforms, right? So both, I think, continue to exist. And if you look at things like open source software, it turns out that the proprietary software companies are all building on top of open source software, right? So it turns out that this competition between proprietary and open actually enables the proprietary software companies to be more valuable, right? So if you look at the total value of the software industry, it has a higher percentage of open source software than ever before in history, but it's also the highest value in history. So I think what we'll see is we'll see governments continue to print money, but increasingly use open source money as, as for example, El Salvador has done. Very interesting. Um, I want to go back to that conversation of, of safe crypto. And in that conversation of safe crypto, you mentioned a couple of things. One, you mentioned the sort of innovation of actually kind of making a safer place. You also mentioned the role of regula regulations and how c companies like Celsius sort of essentially using that working with regulators as a competitive advantage uh, to invite uh, folks to be part of, the, uh, of, of what they do. Um, in making crypto, do you, well, first, it's, it sounds like you think we're going to see much more of that in 22 and after that. Is, that. is that kind of a fair summary of what you said? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's inevitable that, uh, you know, that there are regulatory agendas associated with uh, things like uh, FATF or things like the Treasury Department, DOJ uh, kind of initiatives, uh, you know, like FinCEN. So, you know, to me, I think the AML agenda is a big part of it. Uh, so, you know, a lot of it has to do with creating a zone where people are kind of identifiable, you know, which, of course, makes absconding with money permanently uh, much harder. Right. So I think that there will probably continue to be sort of crypto zones that are uh, less regulated and more wild. And they'll probably uh, become more zones that are well regulated and, you know, will be less 
unsafe. So I think, I think, you know, both, both of these will probably continue to exist. Yeah. Very interesting. Let's talk a little bit about stable coins because some people see them as sort of an opportunity to, you know, diminish that, you know, you know, wild factor, <laughs> the, the poisonous snake factor, uh, or an easier way to, uh, to, 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 to get to the, the, to the decentralized dream. Just curious, kind of, you know, what are your thoughts about uh, stable coins and what do you think the future in 2022 or after? Yeah, we I see stable coins as being very valuable because they represent almost more idealized payment rails, right? And the reason why they represent good payment systems is obviously when you go back to the history of Bitcoin, you have uh, Laszlo famously having paid ten thousand bitcoins for uh, you know Papa John's pizza. You know, so he paid someone the, you know, so those are famous, right? And so obviously when you think about something like a reserve asset, like imagine you're holding gold, right? Like do people use gold to pay for a pizza? You know, they go in, they get a gold bar and the pizza delivery man, they start like shaving pieces of gold hey, off. And they, Thanks you know, for the sometimes pizza. Sometimes a girl wants to be eccentric, so don't judge, okay? Yeah, yeah. So you go under your bed, you get your gold bar, you know, and you just start shaving off. And it's like, is that enough for the pizza? You know, so it's, it's yeah. But, you know, so, so Bitcoins are not that awesome for payment because like, obviously you're kind of expecting to hold them as a reserve asset. So just to clarify, Reserve asset is what central banks use to buy back their own currency, right? So if their currency becomes too cheap, they have to have the power to buy their currency back, right? So obviously, if you have dollars, right, you, your reserve asset for dollars can't be dollars because you can't buy a dollar back with a dollar. I mean, if you did, nothing would happen. So like, you know, so you have to have something else that backs up your dollar, right? So the idea becomes that like Bitcoin is a reserve asset. So the idea that you're spending your reserve asset every day doesn't actually make sense because the goal of a reserve asset is you hold it until you feel like the price of your uh, main asset is actually really bad, right? And if you feel like your your dollar is collapsing, then you have to sort of start selling gold or actually buying back your dollar, right? So I guess what I'm saying is, is that stable coins will really form an ideal payment. One of the news items that popped recently is that PayPal is investigating sort of uh, launching their own stable asset. You know, I think they're already partnered with Paxo. So it seems it seems likely that that's a pretty easy thing for them to do. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I am with you there. I have to ask you about the Mimi coins. <laughs> yeah. uh, we've seen some. Uh, you know, interesting coins uh, in 21. Uh, are we going to see more of that? Or are we kind of over that? Uh, what, what role uh, do you think that that fund played in the evolution, the revolution of, of the cryptos? <laughs> I think it will hopefully be a historical artifact. I think that will continue to exist. But, I, you know, for example, like if you look at Dogecoin as probably the grandfather of them all, right? But then <laughs> you saw things like Shiba Inu, right? So you saw these kind of like, but the funny thing about these coins that are kind of based on dogs is that like, you know, anyone can make like a, a wiener dog coin or they can just keep making more and more. There's a lot of different kind of dogs out there, you know, so they can start going all, you know. So my point is, is that there's no end to it. Right. And so I think there's there's really the pattern in crypto. 
I think should be that you play, right? Just to see what happens, right? But then after you play, you should kind of learn, right? And, and then once you learn, then you should come back smarter, right? Because I think if you really think about these kind of meme coins, like it's really pure speculation. And I think that, um, you know, the thing that becomes interesting is, is that um, when you look at things like Bitcoin price, they used to call it like tulips, tulip mania, right? Yeah. But yeah. what happened historically in tulip mania is the price chart would spike and then it would crash and then it would basically be a flat line forever. Right? Yeah. That's what tulips looks like, right? Whereas yeah. Bitcoin doesn't or, do or that. babies, yes. <laughs> Correct. It doesn't do that, right? It keeps, it keeps kind of going higher, right? So the point is, is that after a long analysis, you begin to realize that there is value, right? That there's a very powerful value. And one of the things I love to address is there's a really silly phrase called intrinsic value. So like <laughs> it has meaning in economics, but it doesn't have a real meaning. And what I mean by that is, is nothing really has an intrinsic value. Everything only has a value of a utility. But if I describe Bitcoin as a utility that prevents governments from overprinting money, Right. Then then so the Internet created a reserve bank called Bitcoin. Right. And it basically allows people to offset the power of governments. So if you think about the idea that you can now sort of effectively as an individual prevent your government from overprinting money, you know, that's pretty amazing. I think that's a really cool thing that you can do now. And so I think that, uh, you know, it has value and it probably at the moment, people think it has about a trillion dollars worth of value. Yeah, yeah. Well, I love the framework. Uh, play, learn, grow up. Uh, <laughs> I think that 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 was a good way to put it. Uh, we're coming to the end. I have a couple more questions, so let me sort of talk. Of, like, if you were looking forward to 2022, what has worked? What hasn't? What should we do more? What should we do less? Yeah, so uh, I think that you know, 2022 promises to be an incredibly experimental year. I think we are seeing a lot of kind of excitement around metaverse. I think one of the things we're looking forward to is the launch of Cambria, which is the next gen Facebook VR headset. You know, I think uh, Apple is kind of uh, hinting at an AR headset that they're you know putting out. So. I think the availability of high quality consumer AR and VR, I think will be really interesting and they will kind of push forward the interface for the internet, you know? So I think that, you know, as we move into the 2022, I think we're going to see more of a metaverse uh, concept trying to evolve. And I think one of the things that we're seeing quite a lot of is we're seeing a lot of play to earn gaming. So we're seeing new business models involving gaming that I think are going to be, I think, pretty big. Um, you know, I think things that have not worked, you know, I think so far, you know, we, we, I think one of the things that happens is that, you know, these kind of waves of price action create these really weird anti-patterns where kind of new and in, new investors or new entrants in the space, they kind of buy high because of the hype. And then when it starts to decrease, they start selling low, right? Mm -hmm. So like nobody, this isn't financial advice, but buying high and selling low isn't how you do it. You know? <laughs> this is not advice. Like, this is just basics. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But what, but what I'm trying to say is that like, you know, 
in some ways, some of the hype has kind of created a weird kind of investment environment, you know? So from my perspective, you know, uh, the other day I, I, on my Twitter, I said that like, you know, uh, it's really bad to buy high and sell low. It's probably good to buy when it's low. Right. But in, in some ways, the most, the smartest people that I know actually aren't paying very much attention at all to kind of the prices going up and down. Right. So in a way, like coming back to this term kind of view on on this industry. And I I am, I I love that. And I I mean, as an investor, I think that, that, that's your goal as well. You're very active on YouTube. You have a channel. So um, as a maybe uh, goodbye to this conversation, tell us more. I'm a fan, but I would love for you to tell the folks what it is, where you can be found and, and, and sort of the goal there. I appreciate it. So uh, my show is Miko Bits, M-I-K-O-B-I-T-S, Miko Bits. And you can find me on most popular podcast areas as well as on YouTube, uh, M-I-K-O.com slash bits. And then, uh, you know, what I do there is I really focus on the humans, right? Because I think one of the things that's happening with people investing is they're really just handing money to people they never met. So like, I feel like at the very least you could do is watch a video and see if this human even seems reasonable, you know, and, and a lot of, a lot of crazy people are getting investment, you know, and the investors sometimes don't even have a good feeling for who they are. So, you know, this is really about the people of blockchain, the people of DeFi, people of NFT, people of the metaverse. So, you know, it's very, it's very people focused uh, show. I, I am a fan. You, you have a number one fan here. So Miko, thank you so much for this enlightening conversation. It has been my dream to talk to you. And uh, it, my dream came true in 2022, right in the beginning. So it must be a good year for, for all of us, right? <laughs> Thanks so um, much. Thank you so much for joining. Uh, we'll continue having more conversation about blockchain value. That is the one prediction that I know for sure will come true. Uh, and so thank you so much for joining. And I'll see you soon. Bye, everyone.